If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up, I was a average athlete. Uh, after 25 years, I think I'm finally willing to admit that, that I'm finally, I was just average. I wasn't wasn't very good. Um, average, it's not bad, it's just not good. Uh, in one of the sports that I was average in, uh, basketball, is in basketball, uh, you would do something called, or the coach would force you to do something called a suicide. How many here know what a suicide is? Oh, wow, lots of people know that is. That's good, it's going to help. So if you don't know what a suicide is, basically you would run, you, you start at one end, and you'd run to the free throw line, and then you'd run back, and then you'd run to the half court, and then you'd run back. I'm seeing some of your faces like already getting lower, like, oh my gosh. And you'd run back to the other uh, free throw line, run back, and then all the way back. You, you'd do that. And what would happen is that the coach would do that, the basketball coach would do that at the end of practice, after you've already had a full practice, but would make sure if there was any energy left in you, any ambition at all, he would run it out of you. Uh, until it was completely gone. And this, and, but this, was, this had a purpose, all right? This had a purpose. The reason why coaches would do that is because they wanted to prepare you for the game action. They wanted to prepare your legs and prepare your lungs uh, for four quarters of, of basketball so that when the, the game was getting toward the end, you didn't lose your legs, you didn't lose your lungs, you didn't run out of gas. And so it was preparing, uh, preparing you for something. And that's why you would do these, these suicides. Well, hold that thought. In eighth grade, um, I, uh, we, this, this woodshop class that I was a part of, I was about a, we had to walk about a half mile to this woodshop class and so that, from, the, from the main school building. And one day, a shop got canceled because there was, it, was, it was like a blizzard. I mean, it was snowing really bad, and so like, they're like, okay, you don't have, you're not going to walk a half mile. It's crazy. You'll get pneumonia or something, so you don't do that. Well, we knew that one kid did not hear this announcement. And so me and a few other guys on the basketball team thought it would be funny if we would trick this guy into thinking there was still, um, don't look at me like that, don't judge me, They're like, let me finish my story. And um, it would be funny if you know, he would, go, so we were like, hey, we're going to be late for, for shop, we better hurry up. And so we, we, we took off and you know, we ran into a janitor's closet or something and he fumbled around his locker and, he, and then he took off and, and he went and we actually kind of forgot about it and... And he comes back like 30 or 40 minutes later. He's just like soaking wet, face is red, freezing, you know, just like, I, I, I mean, this is not funny, but I think he, I think he got really sick and um, his mom was hot. was really, really mad. Well, the, the coach, the basketball coach found out that we did this. So this coach goes to our class 
yanks us out of class, get your shoes on, get your shorts on, and meet me in the gym. And I, we did suicide after suicide after suicide after suicide. And I mean, I'm not going to say who, but some, some crying happening. And there is, <laughs> and, uh, and now let me just say this. The coach did not do that to prepare us for the future, <laughs> but to punish us for the past. And I'm bringing this up because there will be times in your life where you're going to look over to the sidelines and you're going to see God with his whistle and he's going to tell you to get in the line. He's going to whistle for you to run a suicide. Difficulty is going to come your way. And you're going to have the choice to make, is he doing this to prepare me for the future or to punish me for my past? You're going to have to decide in those moments who God is. And I bring this up because we're in a series in Malachi that is not a hallmark greeting. I mean, there's nothing in Malachi that's like, hey, you're a special person. This is like, <laughs> hey, you're like doing some things I don't like. And I want you to get on the line and I want you to run a few. And you're going to think, is God punishing me or is God preparing me? Is God purifying me? And uh, I, I need you to settle in your mind, if you're a Christian here this morning, that God does not... His fire is not consuming, it's refining in your life. And he's, he's preparing you for something, and he wants something better for you. You keep putting things in your life that are preventing you from blessing, but he's wanting, he's wanting to tear down those things so that you would be blessed, so that you would have renewal. And that's why we're in this series uh, in the book of, of Malachi, because what's going to happen, we talked about this a, a little bit last week, is that when God comes to convict you of something, Satan comes alongside and he begins to condemn you. And so when something bad happens to you or something difficult happens to you, when you're under the pressure, Satan's going to say, God is punishing you because your sin deserves punishment. And he's half right. That's why it's so believable. Your, Your sin does deserve punishment. But if you are in Christ, that is, you are in a relationship with Christ, he took your punishment for you. And so if you're a Christian, there is no more punishment for you, only purification. So you can settle it in your mind, Christian, that any time you're under stress, you go through a storm, and you know, some have said like you're either in a storm, just left a storm, or getting ready to hit a storm, like life is full of difficulties, but if you settle in your mind that his fire in your life is not consuming, it is refining, man, I hope that you, I hope that you when you come under the, his, his pressure, that's, that's where you go. But this is not punishment for you, but this is preparing. This is, this is uh, preparation. Now, there is a consuming fire that comes to those who do not believe. And so if you are here this morning and you do not believe that you're, you're not in a relationship with Christ, there is a fire, there is a judgment coming that is not refining, that is consuming. Just like when, when the, the same coach can take the same activity and use it to prepare us or use it to punish us, God's fire in our lives can be to purify us, and, but for others, it can be punishing. My hope is that, that, you, would, that you would hide from that that you would hide from the punishment of God. Where do you hide? There's only one place to hide. It's in a relationship with Christ. So as we go through this book of Malachi, and we're trying to get back to this place of renewal, this place where God can bless us, there are some things that we've talked about 
The first week, we talk about careless or apathetic worship. Last week was relational, breaking the covenant um, by how we treat one another or uh, generally, but also distorting the picture of marriage uh, specifically. And we talked about in that divorce and um, marrying an unbeliever. And then this week is about justice. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're in uh, Malachi 2.17. I'm going to read, we're going to hit, just go through a couple verses here. It'd be helpful if you could see it. Verse 17, it says, you have wearied. So here's the complaint. It's coming. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Literally, that word means sat in him. You sat in his spirit. Uh, that you've made God sad. He, he's, he's, he's weighed down by what you've said and what you've done. So I want you to imagine that. I want you to think about that. Think about what it would be like for God to come to you and say, man, like you've made me sad. How you are is making me sad right now. It's breaking my heart. It's wearing me down. Now you may say what they said, which is like, well, how, we, how am I doing that? Like, what, what have I done? By saying everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord and he delights in him. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So basically you had this group uh, who was... I'll use the word self-righteous, which means that they, they just believe that they are right. That's all that really means, uh, right in and of themselves. They thought that they were a righteous group, and everybody around them was unrighteous. So God was like, hey, how could, God, how could you let, you know, you're letting bad people uh, succeed, and you're letting good people fail. You know, how can a good God let bad, you know, um, bad things happen to good people, and how could a good God let good things happen to bad people? God's response, essentially, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 was they're not getting away with it. The day of the Lord is coming. The judgment of evil on this earth is yet to come, not because I'm slow. So if you read Isaiah 30 and 1 Peter, they both talk about God's not slow with his judgment, but he's patient, he's kind, and he's merciful. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He's not bringing his judgment because if he brought his judgment, well, there would be some that would come under the consuming fire of God, and he wants all to come to a place of repentance. So he's holding the door open. But here in Malachi, he's like, hey, look, there is injustice out in the world, and the day of the Lord is coming, but let's not talk about the injustice out there. I want to talk about the, the injustice that's in your life. Let's talk about that, because he talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, and he says that it's going to, be, it's going to come suddenly, which means it's going to surprise them. It's going to come unexpectedly. God's going to come unexpectedly. And, and, and are you prepared for that, he, he's saying. And verse 5 is where we'll, we'll part today. God says, so I will come to you and put you on trial. You, okay, you want a God a justice? I'll show you a God of justice. I will come and I will put you on trial and I will testify against you. In this courtroom scene, God's playing all three parts. He's, he's the prosecuting attorney. I will bring a case against you. And I'll be the expert witness. I've seen the injustice. I've seen your injustice. He sees everything. Hebrews 4 says, there are no secrets. All lay bare before God. And I will be the judge and jury. I will hand out the sentence. He's bringing the charge. He's witness to our crimes. And he will be the judge. What are the charges? Well, he mentions six things in two, in two different categories. The first category, you could say, is moral injustice. Being apathetic about moral injustice. Uh, sorcery, adultery, 
and perjury. And the second one you can classify as social injustices, defrauding laborers of their wages, depressing widows and orphans, and, and, and depriving foreigners. And God cares about both. He cares about both issues of injustice. He cares about moral justice, and he cares about social justice. Uh, either one of these things right now could be a barrier to renewal and blessing in your life. Maybe for you, it's, it's, it's moral injustice. It, it could be sorcery. It could be mediums, tarot cards, horoscopes, just or seeking out um, revelation outside of God and his spirit and or, or believe it, falling prey to um, a, a cult or a false religion that isn't the God of the Bible, sorcery. There is a spiritual world out there, and it's not all good. Then he, or adultery. It could be adultery. It could be sleeping with someone that is not your spouse. That is adultery. That is, a, that is a moral injustice in the eyes of God. Or it could be pornography. Jesus said that if you look at a woman lustfully, it's the same as, as adultery. You could be caught up in that right now. You could be in that pattern right now, and that could be preventing you. God's coming to you. God wants to bring pressure in your life to see that renewal come to, your, come to you. That's moral, inju- or it could be, excuse me, per- perjury. I forgot one. Um, lying, deceit, not telling the truth, shading the truth, not being a person of integrity, which means not, you know, not being the whole you the whole time, being one way one, it, with this group and this way with another group, not being a, not being a transparent person. That's moral injustice, and God wants to refine, refine you of that so he can bless you. But there's also social injustice, which we'll spend a lot more time with. And here's why. Because every culture will, will elevate some sins and downplay others, right? Every, every culture does that. It's not, it's not uh, we as Americans do that. And we're, I'm going to talk about Americans because most of us are American. Um, but every culture does that. If you just go around, everyone uh, elevates some sin and downplays others. Americans do the same thing. Now, for the most part, I think that we get that moral injustice bothers God, even if we're not convicted by it. Like you may be engaged in adultery or lying or sorcery, and you, but you, you may not be convicted and you may not stop, but you at least know that God's not happy with it. Like you at least know that. But when, it, when we read like oppressing workers with unfair wages, including immigrants and refugees, we're just like, bro, that's capitalism, man. That's like this the way the world turns. That's like how it, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and you got to get in there, and what you get is, is what you go after. And what you don't get, you know, you just got to work harder. You got to, you know, you got to do different things. And, um, but as Christians, we can't, we can't see it that way. That we have to see that, that inequities socially, um, social injustice, oppressed workers with unfair wages, immigrants, refugees, um, widows, orphans, those who are on the bottom rung of the ladder, uh, God's saying um, how you treat them is a very big concern to me. Augustine said that there are three things that Christians should use differently than everyone else, money, sex, and power. Augustine was an early church father. You know, a lot of his, what he said about theology is a lot of what Orthodox Christianity is all about. And he said, so we should look differently. So the way that we use our money should be different than, any, than other Americans. 
The way Christians use their money should be different than the way Americans use their money. The way um, we use power, how we treat authority, how we treat leadership, how we view serving, what does it mean to be great in his kingdom, all those things. We should, it should look different. What do we do with our advantages? How we treat sex should be different. Yeah, I realize this is how everyone else does sex, but we should treat those things differently. But so if there are things that are embedded in our culture as the American way, that could be sexually or with money or with power, we as Christians can't get entangled in uh, the, the American culture. We have to untangle that because we have to promote kingdom culture. Kingdom culture, not American culture, must rule our heart. And look, man, I'm all about America. Like, I'm not one of those guys that dog America. I travel, and I think, I think America's great. Like, I, I, I love, you know, I love uh, the stars and stripes. I mean, I want to hear uh, the national anthem. So much, though, so I watched the Winter Olympics. I mean, that's how much I love America. Like, I so much want to see American thing. I'll watch the Winter Olympics. Like, I mean, they're not even sports. Like, what it, like, <laughs> like I, I get fly, as a parent, as a parent, I get flyers all the time for, you know, 13-year-old basketball, 13-and-a-half-year-old basketball, and, like, you know, just, like, all the different times of years, and, like, I've never, my kid, I've never gotten a flyer about, does your son want to do curling? Like, does that, like, <laughs> never, I've never gone to, I've never gone to Dick's Sporting Goods and see a, a curling ball or whatever those things are. Like, I just don't, no. stone. <laughs> it won't be the first time I offend you today. Trust me. Um, anyway, so I love America. That's my point. I love America. It's not about curling. But I, do, I don't know who grows up curling. I don't know who these people are, but they become very good at it and they win medals and that's great because the national anthem gets played. And my point is I love America. And um, she has her problems, but I think she gets a lot right. Um, but, 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 as much as I love America, as much as you may love America, we have to be about kingdom values more than we are American values which will, if you are a kingdom person and not an American person first, the kingdom values will contradict, will contradict you. They will contradict you. And I think this is especially important. You know, so if you didn't know, you know there's an election coming up? Did you know that? If, if you check your mailbox ever, and if you, check, if you ever watch television ever, uh, you know that, or if you look at anybody's yard, like there it, or there's an election coming up. I mean, I'm getting it through the mail. I'm getting it, you know, every time I watch TV, you know, just ad after ad after ad after ad. And it's going to be really easy uh, for you to get sucked in to, to a, a vision for what life should be about, which, which, cuts, which cuts into our topic today, which is why I'm bringing it up, is um, that you have to be careful that you don't get sucked in because we, every, we are a divided country and the way that politicians win elections is they, they make sure that they, you know how divided we are. And they, they, make, I mean, they make it like if you vote for this person, I mean, it's like, it's like Halloween music and grim and you know, just like you know, you're gonna wake up to the uh, Armageddon the next day if you vote for this person. And it's really, and it, you can get sucked into that. And here's what it ends up happening. If you get sucked into the divide, is that you're going, to have, you're going to have a really difficult time contradicting your own political party because you'll feel like you're conceding a political point, and that's not what your party does. 
And, and I say your party. I don't care what part. You pick which one it is. And, okay, there's one thing I don't like about America. It, uh, democracy is great, but um, too political, just too political is just not very, there needs to be more robust political parties, but that's, that's all I'll say about that. Um, but well, even in that, even as a Christian, one thing that you, the, you do, this is probably worth mentioning, is that the, you believe as a Christian that the best form of government isn't a democracy, by the way. If you're a Christian, the best form of, of government is a benevolent dictator. Because that's who God is. God is a benevolent dictator. He doesn't consult you when he makes a decision. He just does it. And he's right every time. That's the best form of government. So whatever, so our form of government, and it's all, so we've got quiet in here. All these weaknesses here. <laughs> Don't worry, you can still vote. You're, hey, you matter. You are a beautiful, wonderful person. Okay. Um, so, you, so in this environment, if you get sucked into that, because they're in both parties, in both groups, there are things that your party believes in that, that does contradict what the kingdom says. And if you're not aware of that, you're going you're gonna to find yourself, uh, you're going to find yourself, I, I, let me say it this way. I, I heard a quote by a guy, guy named Dr., um, uh, Dr. George Yancey. He's a sociologist. He's at Emory University. He said this. I believe he's a Christian. Um, well, you'll see why. He says, I, he says, I can see where you're coming. F- okay, this is not this one. Okay, good, look over there. Uh, if, you felt, if you felt compelled to vote for Trump, I can see where you're in the last election. I can see where you're coming from. But if that was you, here we are, we'll pick this up again. Your voice should be the loudest when disparaging things are said about fellow citizens. On the other side, if after considering all the factors you felt compelled to vote for Hillary, your voice should be the loudest about the sanctity of life, religious liberty, and the ability God has put in each of us to make something of ourselves. So here's what he's saying. He's saying what we've been, what I just said a second ago, which is that undoubtedly in your party, there are things and there are candidates who do not represent you. And in this ever dividing culture that we're in, you need to be clear, Christian, about what you represent ultimately. Do you represent a party? Or do you represent who God is and what he cares about? Because whatever party you're in, that's what he says. Look, hey, look, if you can vote for Trump, fine. You know, I get it, whatever, but do this. If you vote for Hillary, fine, whatever, I get it, but do this. Meaning that you need to be the, now, so you don't get on, so like what what you don't do is, so if you are on one side, you you get on Twitter, you, you, you say all the things that your party believes in and you disparage the other party. Or on the other side, you, you, you get on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever the cool kids are doing, and you, and, you, and you affirm your party and you disparage the other one. The Christians should be the ones who say, you know what, I do vote for this person. I do vote in this party, but here's, here's all the things that they get wrong because I'm not about this party. I'm about the kingdom. Are you willing to do that? Yeah. It's just a dream of mine. I know it's not going to happen, but it's just a dream of mine that we could do that that we could not stand on that, but in this season, like we could say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to, yeah, yeah, I vote Democrat and, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to speak out against abortion. Yeah, I vote Republican and I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit quietly 
when my party is disparaging about other races. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak up because, yeah, okay, um, in my conscience, I feel to go this way, but I have to be, I, I don't want to get sucked into the divide. Let me give you one test about how you might get sucked into the divide. You're like, well, how do I know this is true of me? This is, how, this is one way. This is the only way. This is one way that you can tell. Does the other party winning make you angry, afraid, or anxious? Does the, does the other party winning, does the other candidate winning make you angry, afraid, or anxious? If it makes you afraid, angry, or anxious, you've got sucked up into thinking, into that, like, my party is what's going to make things work. If you get angry, afraid, or anxious. Because in the kingdom, there's only, there's only one person on the throne. His name starts with J, ends with S. He's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And that's where our allegiance is. And this culture can do this all at once. Anyway, I'm a pastor. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not here to untangle and, and say how because I think uh, both parties come at, at different issues with different uh, levels of wisdom. So my, my thing isn't to untangle immigration. It's not to untangle minimum wage law. It isn't untangle whatever, you know, the laws are what they are. I'll let someone else worry about that. But here is my responsibility for you before God, is to, as your pastor, to speak prophetically about what the Bible says about what God values. And so even as I talk today, I mean, you'll be tempted. I mean, some of you may think, oh, he's just conservative, or, you know, it's, his hair is short, and, and then some of you can think, oh, he's liberal, like he's got his shirt untucked, and like, like you're going you're gonna, to like, you're gonna think all these things... You're going to think all these things, but I'm just saying, like, all I'm doing is I'm just sharing you what the Bible has to say. If you, anyway, here we go. So the Bible cares about moral injustice. God cares about moral injustice, and he cares about social injustice. And uh, there's just oodles and oodles of, 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 I'll just do a couple. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow. This is going to sound just like Malachi. All the prophets, they speak prophetically to the group about the same things. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not press the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Sojourners, immigrants, someone from a different country who's left their country for whatever reason and is now in your country. And let no one, let none of you devise evil against another in their heart. Isaiah talks about it. Ezekiel talks about it. Everybody, all the prophets talk about it. But let me take you to Proverbs 14, because God takes it up a notch, because he doesn't just say, here's how I want you to act. He says, here's who I, here, who, here's, I'm going to show you who I'm identifying with. He says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. You do it to me, you do it, you know, do it to my family, you do it to me. Like he's, he's taking this very seriously. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He's identifying with the poor. God in in the Old Testament, identified with the poor. So like when I go speak at another church or a conference or whatever, I always get introduced as the pastor of this church, the husband of Rachel, the father to uh, Simon, Josie, and Ella. Because that's basically what I do. I do those three things. That's what I do. When God gets introduced, he gets introduced as the father to the fatherless. He gets introduced in Psalm 68 as a husband to the widow. He identifies 
with the poor. You see, all the other gods in that part, in that, if you go back in ancient times, all the gods uh, appealed to the wealthy, and, and the wealthy dictated what the gods said. You know, imagine that. And so, and so it, was, it was always thought of that the gods favored those who are the high, highest of social order, because the reason why you are in high social order is because you've done something for the gods to look favorably on you. God turns that on its heel and says, everything's for me. If you have anything, if you have an ounce of intelligence, ambition, or money, or prestige, or power, it's all from me. So when there's someone who's uh, I'm going to identify with those, not at the top of the rung, but at the bottom of the rung. So this is very, very important to God. He says to do it, and he identifies with the poor. He, he identifies with the oppressed. He identifies with the marginalized. Jesus spoke out against this in the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are doing everything right. You're being super religious. You're tithing off your spice rack. You're like, you know, your mint leaves and all, you know, you're doing all this. You're being very careful to obey the law, but you're missing out on justice to the poor. And on the last day, Jesus said, so there'll be two groups of people. Both groups will see that I was hungry and needed clothes and a place to stay. One of you will help me and one of you won't. And both groups said, when did we see you poor, naked, and hungry? And he says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. So point being, God, this is a really important issue to God, social justice. Now, everyone has a theory on how to make it work, and that's why we have political parties. So I'm not speaking, there's different people approach it from different ways, and I'm not getting into that. But what the Bible does speak of is that um, what justice is, justice is at least three things. Justice, number one, is, is fair and equal treatment. So Leviticus 24, 22, which I know you have this on your fridge, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner, that is the immigrant, as you do for the native, that is citizens, for I am the Lord your God. You should treat everyone the same. People near to you, people far off. Isaiah 58, verse 7 says that, that why, do you, why do you treat the, uh, uh, why do you treat the, 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 the poor, uh, the immigrant, the sojourner, the fatherless, uh, the widow, and hide from your own flesh. Basically saying everybody in the world is connected to you. They're, they're like your family. I want you to treat everyone in the world like they're your family. And Jesus picks that up with the Good Samaritan. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, heart mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the lawyer looking to, here's a word you should underline, justify himself, said, well, who is my neighbor? It's not everyone, is it? And, and Jesus basically said, yeah, it's everyone. But it's not just that everyone, that we should treat everyone the same, racially and socially and economically, but the marginalized are a special concern for God. Those who are at the bottom rung are, a, those who cannot speak for themselves so the Bible never says, hey, uh, speak for the wealthy, powerful male. It says, speak for the poor widow. So it says those in society that are oppressed, they're at the bottom rung, 
that you should have special concern for. Now, here's what we need to know, that the Bible doesn't call this charity. Because you can be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. If I see someone poor, I should help them out. But if I do, it's my choice. The Bible doesn't view it that way. The Bible says that this isn't charity. The Bible says that this is, a, is advocacy. You are advocating, like you, you, I'm a, you're, when you help the poor, you're helping me. I take it very personally. You have a lot, not because you're, you're an amazing human being. You have a lot because of me. I decided that you, you were not in the womb saying, okay, 21st century America, you know, good school district, you know, some intellect and ambition, please. Like you want, you know, and, and please give me parents that read to me at night. Like that's not what you were saying. God gave that to you. God gave that to you. I have advantages. Uh, I have advantages uh, because I was raised by, I mean, both my parents. I, I was not raised by a single parent. I'm way more likely to get a better education. I'm way more likely to be successful in life because of that fact. I'm born in America. I'm born in the 21st century. I'm told by sociologists that my white skin is worth about a million dollars over the course of my life over someone who doesn't have white skin. I don't know if I'll ever see that million dollars, but... I, <laughs> I'm, that's what I'm told. I don't have any reason not to believe that. So there's just advantages I have. And so there, I shouldn't feel bad about that. I don't need to be, feel bad about what I have, but what I, what I do with what I have is really important. That's what the Bible talks about. So I should advocate. I'm not giving charity because it's not mine. What I have is what God gave me is charity because I don't deserve it. But God gave it to me anyway. But what I do with it God's very interested in. So I should be generous. I should share my assets. I should share myself. Meaning like I give of myself. Like I actually just don't give money, but I give of myself. So there are people in our society, there are kids growing up in our city right now with, in single parent homes, unstable families, in very poor school districts, and to put it nicely, terrible friends. You put those things together, and by the time they're 14, 15 years old, they're functionally illiterate, and they have a high percentage to not only struggle economically, but they'll be at risk for a lot of other bad statistics. Liberals say that's because of systematic inequality, and conservatives say that's because of breakdown in the family. Now, here's the truth. It's probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But here's what nobody's saying. Here's what nobody says. Nobody says it's the kid's fault. Nobody says it's the kid's fault. Conservatives and liberals can agree that no, it's not the kid's fault. They are the poor. They are at the bottom rung of the ladder. And God says that whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. When it is in your power to act, God would say, we should act. You feel guilty yet? It won't last the guilt. It'll go away soon, which is why it's a terrible motivator to do, to help people who are less fortunate than you, who are in the marginalized group. Guilt doesn't work. 
I mean, that's what guilt, that's what everyone does. Everyone uses guilt. I mean, I don't, they don't really do telephones anymore, do they? I don't know if they do. If they do, I don't, I don't see them. But I remember growing up like the Jerry Lewis telethon for muscle dystrophy. And he'd always get up there and he would say, if you pick up that phone and you give money, when you hang up that phone, you can look in the mirror and you could say, you are a good person. Self-interest, guilt. You should be doing this. And if you do, it's, it's self-interest and it doesn't work. Neither does having the right idea or plan, you know, if we just had the right government, the right tax plan, the right educational system, we need, we need better technology, better education, and da, 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 all that'll work. I mean, that's been proven that it does not work. I mean, we keep trying, and it doesn't work. There is a, famously, this British woman, uh, Beatrice Webb, uh, part of the social elite in the late, in the late 19th century. She got together with some of the, Europe's brightest minds, and they came up with an amazing plan to, to bring about social justice. And uh, 35 years later, it, they, after she realized it didn't work, um, she wrote in her diary, I'll summarize here, but basically they, they were, they, at the center of their plan was the goodness of humanity. And after 35 years of trying to put this plan together, realized that unless you do something about the moral, she said, the moral failure in the human heart, you're just not going to, you're not going to make any ground because we're all, you know, we'll all default to self-interest. We'll all default to that. And it just doesn't last. Duty doesn't last. So we don't have the Jerry Lewis telethon, but we have Twitter. We have Facebook. We shame people. We'll shame you until you get it right. Oh, you think this way, you, you know, you, these, so, you know, and I hope this isn't you. You get, people get on Twitter, Facebook and be like, you know, I know I shouldn't say this, but I'm just so angry about, why can't more people, oh, you mean be like you? Oh, yeah, okay. You'll cut corners, you'll make it about you, it'll become self-righteous, you'll become angry, you'll become bitter, and it won't work. What does work? Duty does not work, beauty does. And that's where, at the end of verse 5, it says you, you don't do these things because you don't fear the Lord. And, and fearing the Lord gets a bad rap. It, I mean, people think, like, why should I be afraid of God? Well, you're afraid of things. You're afraid of, if you really value a relationship, you're afraid of losing that relationship. If you really value money, you're afraid of losing money. If you really value how people view you, you're afraid of people viewing you in a negative light. So you fear things. You just don't know it, it, that you would say is unhealthy. But this word really means to stand in awe of something. Like you look at something and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing and big. Could something be so beautiful and so magnificent that it would propel us to be self-forgetful enough and faith-filled enough to 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 not think of ourselves as better than anyone else, but also to disregard even our own comfort and security to make sure other people are taken care of. What could be so beautiful to do that? In the Old Testament, we know that God identified with the poor, but in the New Testament, God literally became poor. He was born in a feed trough. There was no inn for him, only a feed trough. Parents get, his parents gave two pigeons as a sacrifice, which was a sacrifice to the temple of the poorest of the poor. 
At one point in his life, he walked as a wandering homeless man and said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He went into Jerusalem the last week of his life riding a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. His only possession was his garments that were raffled off by the Roman soldiers. But he just didn't become poor. He became oppressed. His trial was a miscarriage of justice. And he can identify with anyone who'd been wrongly tortured, wrongly murdered, wrongly hung from a tree. On the cross, Jesus became our justice. He took the consuming fire of God and he absorbed all of the judgment of our sin on the cross. And I struggle to do justice when I feel superior to other people. Being in awe of God, being standing in the fear of God doesn't let me feel superior to anyone. I struggle to do justice when I feel lack. You know, if I just, I'd love to hell, but I don't have enough for me. But when I realize that he who, would, who didn't even spare his own son, would he not give me all things? Who would supply any lack that I have, not with my riches and glory, but his riches and glory. When I, when I stand in awe of, who, of that God, then I'm freed up to do justice. Now, ultimately, justice won't happen until the day of our Lord returns. It will never be anywhere near 100%. On that day, we'll see him, we'll become like him. You know, the dross will be totally removed and we'll be nothing but gold and silver. But I hope it's not 0% now. We'll never get to 100%, but I hope it's not zero. I hope there's some change. I hope there's some movement in the moral injustice in your life. I hope you're, you're trying to allow God to remove that from you. I hope you're hoping to allow God to soften your heart to the needy, to the poor, to the marginalized. Let God be a refining fire in your life. He's not doing that to punish you. He's doing that to prepare you and purify you for the day of his return and for your joy, for your renewal, and for your blessing. Why don't we stand?